in accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. What we find is that we have to develop our systems to allow for those businesses to double and triple and quadruple in five fast. Hello everyone, I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. That clip was from Libby King of Libby King & Associates, an entrepreneurial CPA with a unique practice there in Austin, Texas. I invited Libby on the show for several reasons, one being that she had worked at the GAO, or the United States General Accounting Office, and that in particular had always been a job that I personally wanted to know more about. And in addition, she's taken her governmental accounting experience, including that position at the GAO, and spun it into her own successful business. And the governmental contracting space is something we haven't really touched on much as of yet, so I figured the mixture of those two topics would make for a really interesting episode for both you and I, actually. If you're one of those up-and-coming professionals that's just curious about the governmental space or governmental contracting space, as well as careers surrounding that, I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Libby. If you do feel like this episode has been particularly valuable to you, make sure you check out the show notes on our home website at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. You can find the show notes for this episode, the show notes for every other episode, as well as information on our most recent book publication and some additional blog entries that are meant to help you further your own accounting career. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Libby King of Libby King and Associates in Austin, Texas. Hello, Libby. Thanks for making the time for us today. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for inviting me to this discussion. No problem. Well, for our audience, we have Libby King of Libby King and Associates on the line with us today. And this is going to be another unique episode. We've had several entrepreneurial accountants on the show and even a few governmental employees as well, but we haven't yet had someone that took their governmental experience and spun it into a successful commercial business. And as always, I like to showcase all the different career paths that are available to us as accountants. So I thought Libby King there in Austin, Texas would make a wonderful guest for the show. Libby, before we get into your business as it exists today, I always like to start at the beginning so the audience gets an idea of of how you got to where you are. How did you initially decide to look into accounting as a possible career in the first place? It started when I was in high school in a secretarial type job placement system. And so I was typing, doing word processing, fun things like they didn't have bullet points back then. We used to have to type the letter O and tab, and then I would color in the O's. That's what I did as a teenager. (laughs) And I found myself attracted to 
the accounting work. There was a finance manager close by and I just liked her and I kept finding myself in her office and asking if she had any extra work for me. And then eventually she went out on sabbatical for six weeks. And of all people, she asked me to kind of hold down the fort for her. And so I really plunged into it and realized during that time that I really had no idea, not really didn't know what I was doing, but also didn't have a foundation for how this all, this big puzzle of accounting and business and finance actually works. So I was inspired to go back to night school and take some accounting classes. Interesting. Okay. Did you start out with a bachelor's degree in accounting or was it more general business then or what was your educational experience like? Well, by the time I went back to college, I had already been out of high school for four years and I had a baby. I was a single mom. So I already knew day one that I wanted to do accounting because I had that work experience and I also needed a good paycheck to take care of myself and my daughter. Okay. Okay. So you knew exactly what you wanted and what you needed at that point. Good deal. Yes. I saw that you worked at the U.S. General Accounting Office, the GAO, and I definitely wanted to touch on that. Was that your first job out of college or was there some experience before that? I had an eight-month-long internship at a software company, but that was waiting for all that paperwork, all that red tape to work its way through the system in order for me to get that job as a junior auditor at the general accounting office. Okay. Well, so I don't know if all you know, young accountants think about this, but I know the GAO was always sort of intriguing to me. And, you know, just you see the news reports and you hear that term and I thought, wow, you know, that's got to be almost like working at the FBI or something. What is working at the GAO like? What was your job like? And I guess, how does it differ from other governmental positions or other, you know, for-profit commercial positions? That is a great question because it is very different from the rest of the government. And it's also similar to the accounting industry that, you know, back then it was the big eight. Now it's the big four. So, you know, being a single mom, I knew that I could not go work for a large accounting firm and work all those extra hours. They say, you know, you work basically back in the day, it was Xeroxing all day and you get a green suntan, what they used to call it. And not only did I not want to work all this extra time, but I also wanted real deep experience and training and exposure. So the GAO was a perfect pick for me because even though I had a scholarship from Arthur Anderson and they expected that I would go work for them after college, I turned them down. But then it turns out that at the GAO, most of the auditors and all the way up through senior management were former Arthur Anderson employees. So all the work papers, all the processes were was very similar to Arthur Anderson. So the best part about at that time of selecting the GAO was it's a very prestigious agency. It actually reports to the Congress. So it's not an executive branch agency. So there's the independent. So GAO will go audit all the executive agencies, everything from, you know, Department of Education, Defense Department, you name it. But then we were chartered by Congress to go look into things and then we report back to Congress. So, you know, very prestigious, but also very long training period. I had several weeks where I learned how the government funding worked, which nobody really knows as a citizen that there's all these stages before you even get to the general ledger. So whether you obligate funds and 
commit funds. There's these different phases. So I had to learn that during that training process. And then they taught other things like back then it was total quality management or process improvement, lots of good training. And then I was put on an amazing project that I'm still very proud of even to this day. And that was working on an audit related to the crash of the savings and loan system. And we can talk a lot about that, but you know, there were very few of us and I actually got to write one of their blue books. I found some fraud and I got to talk to presidential appointees and explain things to them of how their own systems worked. So the experience was to me probably way better than getting bad out green suntan and Xerox thing. We'll put it that way. Interesting. So I'm curious, how much were you out in the field and traveling? And I'm picturing you flying all over the place to do these audits, but I don't know if I'm missing something there. Well, no, actually, I lived in Northern Virginia, which is the suburbs of Washington, D.C. So the agencies were in D.C. So there was a commute, but I got to get on the metro train and you wear a suit, but then you wear those tennis shoes. And i that's how I studied for the CPA exam was riding the train an hour and a half each way, just using flip cards. And so most of it was local. I did end up also auditing the Guaranteed Student Loan Program with the Department of Education and did go down to some other areas in Baltimore and Southern Virginia to audit some guaranteed student loan agencies. But for the most part, the travel was pretty limited. Okay. Well, Take us through the highlights of your career, because I was looking through your experience and I wasn't sure, you know, which parts would be the most beneficial and, you know, to talk about or not. So take us through, you know, working at the GAO up to starting your own firm. I definitely want to talk about that more, but let's get to that a little later. What were some of the high points of that experience in between, you know, what most benefited you? I would say the fact that I was able to touch on such a broad scope of the actual size of the organization that I worked in. So if you can imagine the GAO auditing, you know, my last audit there was with the Department of Education. You know, we're talking billions and billions of dollars in budget. And as an example, the materiality threshold as we were auditing the balance sheet of the Department of Education was $80 million. So even back then, if it was 80 million or under, we didn't even go look at it. So you go from that. And then my next, I jumped out of the government. I didn't want to be labeled a government worker. So it took me quite a while. It took me 18 months to find a job that I was, I thought was appropriate. And that was with a billion dollar government contractor, again, in the Northern Virginia, DC metro area. And so, you know, going from multi-billion to one billion is a jump. It's a change, but I just kept on moving through different positions, not only at that company, but then in some smaller businesses to the point where, you know, you start to see and worry about things that you wouldn't in larger organizations. For example, when I left that billion dollar company for a smaller company, I actually had to consider and worry about cash flow for the first time. And so as the companies got smaller and smaller, I was able to get my arms around the whole aspect of the business and not only accounting and finance, but the whole business. And so that experience allowed me to recalibrate as I go and also determine, you know, what's important, what's not important, and also really expand my horizon in terms of how things are done as companies start up. And I always like to use the example of when I helped a company, it was a software company, brand new, and they were, I had to 
print stock certificates on the printer in my office and put those gold labels on them. And I just thought, wow, is this really how it's done? You know, they trade these things on Wall Street and it seems so esoteric, but they were real. And I got to learn how to do all that. So the fact that I was able to see such a, a different viewpoint as I went through my career up until the point where I started my business, I think was very valuable. Okay. So you had obviously the governmental experience and then a billion dollar contract. I mean, that's still pretty large, but then you've worked at some much smaller businesses as well, it sounds like. Yeah. Okay. What kind of roles? Accounting. And then, you know, in the smaller businesses, it was a controller, business manager, VP finance, you know, always in accounting and finance. Okay. Okay. So your typical accounting management position. Okay. So at what point did you start your business and what was the decision-making process like up to that point? What started you down that road? I would say, you know, it was definitely one of those eureka moments where being in accounting and always being quote-unquote overhead, so I wasn't the fancy salesperson or, you know, didn't have a lot of visibility, but still had an extremely important role in managing and taking care of the lifeblood of the company, you know, being the money and and also managing risk, which I know is not the most sexy thing in the world until the building starts burning down or, you know, fraud happens or something like that. And then the next thing you know, you're a hero if you plan for those types of things. But being in that area of the business I found that the accountants in most of the companies that I worked for were second-class citizens. And I could see things 18 months in the future, even though most of the time you say accounting is looking in your rear view mirror and you're you know, telling a story with the financials that have happened historically. We are also doing budgeting and seeing trends, whether it's little clues like there's not as much commission going out to the salespeople. Well, that means they're not making sales. Or all these contracts are going to end and, you know, my cash flow program is, is indicating that we're having a problem. We're going to have a problem. So I could see that and I felt like my input was worthwhile. And most of the companies that I worked with didn't respect that, for lack of a better term. So I finally had pretty much, I came to my last company and it was a lot of high pressure. I had done a lot of changing and rearranging and improving, automating this particular company that I had worked at for a year. And after coming in and making all these big changes, and pretty much people thought I was a consultant because I just was turning the whole place upside down and you know making it better. I thought, wow, I could do this all the time. This is fun. I don't want accounting to be, oh, you take your calendar and you copy it 12 times and that's your life. So I had I was able to experience the fun part of making a lot of changes in a short amount of time, but also experience really lack of respect. So with those two together, I finally said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a consultant. It just happened to be that that was in late 2008, which is when the financial crash happened. And it didn't scare me at all. As a matter of fact, it empowered me because I thought, you know, if I lose my job, I have nothing and I don't have any money coming in. But if I have 15 clients and one client fires me, I've got 14 clients and I can go out and get five more. So that was my attitude. And I had a client, a paying client my very first day. And I'm completely blessed. You know, it's not all about me, but that has been how this started. 
Interesting. 2008. That's intriguing how you were looking at it, you know, completely opposite as a lot of people. A lot of people would hold on to that job for dear life because, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, they'd be worried they weren't going to make it. What you were looking at it as an opportunity. Huh. That is interesting. What were the early days like? Were you able to get enough, you know, customers quickly or were the first few years tough or? Oh, yeah, they were tough. (laughs) (laughs) It, It was tough. And everything that I learned and experienced, I see that now with my clients that are startups. So I'm able to relate with what they're going through, but also give them some advice and some encouragement. And I'd say that those first couple of years were what I call the scavenger mode. So you'll take anything. And um, so it was a matter of I had a car wash. I had a pet pharmacy. But my very first job was actually my former employer. And I see that happens a lot with new businesses is they'll find, they'll have some champion. It's usually someone that already knows them. So my former employer took me on for a two-week engagement to train my replacement. And then I went back to another former employer and worked for them for several months. So that was very helpful in just starting to get some traction. And then, you know, being in scavenger mode was kind of crazy of learning systems and processes and people that I didn't know. So my mind was a sponge. And one of the bits of advice that I had received from an accounting consultant early on was consultants actually don't have all the answers. They actually don't know everything. They just have to appear like they do. And so you will listen to a problem and repeat it back and document it. And then if you don't have all the answers, then you go back and you basically look it up and you figure out the solution and you present it you know, the next day or later. That's happened several times to the point where as soon as I learn something or get a really good solution, the next week, the same problem comes up with a different client. So now all of a sudden I'm the expert. And, you know, I don't tell them, oh, yeah, I just learned that last week. But so that was the first couple of years. But what I found during those couple of years was as I was sitting in the seats of different businesses, pretty much as a per diem CFO, was that these, there's a reason why these businesses are messed up. And that's what got me thinking about the next phase of the business and where we're at right now. And that is that these small businesses need a fractional back office accounting department or outsourced accounting. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to get down to sort of how you present yourself to the marketplace today. What are your specialties and your strengths and what are your core lines of business? Sure. So we are an accounting department for our clients and we have different roles that we play. There are about 15 of us now. We can do everything from CFO, controller, staff accountant, accounting tech, which is transactional, but not clerical. The accounting techs have to have an accounting degree so that they can, you know, they can do the debits and credits in their suite. We also have payroll specialists and we have systems subject matter experts. So integrating systems so that we can get away from data entry. Certainly no paper in our business, but we will take, we'll enter in an agreement with a client and usually have a cleanup period where we either optimize systems that they're, that they bought, but they're only just using the surface, solving whatever problems and whatever fires are burning. You know, each company comes with a different set of hot topics. So once we get past that initial phase, then we are their back office and we're doing things like paying the payroll, paying the bills, billing their customers, closing the books, conducting meetings with them, helping them price, do cash flow forecasting, all the things that you could imagine an accounting department would do. But it's certainly not 
copy your calendar 12 times and that's your life. There's always something crazy that's going on. Like our clients are going to get acquired or they're going to go out on a joint venture or they're going to bid on a contract that's going to make them quadruple in size. All that stuff is happening every day with these clients. Okay. What is an ideal client for you? It would be, I say, two to 10, two to 10. So two years to 10 years old and okay. 2 million to 10 million. I mean, we can go outside that. We definitely do start up. The reason why it's, you know, two years to 10 years is in the beginning, the businesses aren't, you know, they can't afford to pay an outsourced accountant. So they usually do it themselves or they'll have someone in their family until the company is truly viable. And then they, that's usually their first overhead dollar that they'll start spending as accounting. And then, you know, I like to start with companies that are relatively new, not too old, just because the older companies we find are pretty set in their ways and they're just not as easy to embrace technology unless they are a technology-based company, which is our, that's our sweet spot. And then finally, the fact that our clients have the government as their customer. So government contracting is technically not an industry because we have government contractors that do software development, that do media and advertising, you know, that have different industries that they work in. But there is a special type of cost accounting that comes with government contracting, which I learned in the Washington, D.C. area and am able to apply it across the country. Everything that we do is in the cloud. We've got clients from D.C. to California and everywhere in between and and also teach the people that are working with me those concepts. Okay. Do you serve local clients or is it pretty much all distance clients? We do have local clients as well. Okay. Okay. I've seen that as a trend with a few firms to where they're just doing everything online. <laughs> sort of interesting. So your prior governmental experience is definitely benefiting you and what you do now, particularly in terms of, I guess, understanding the clientele, correct? Yes. Beautiful. And you're basically, you're their outsourced accounting department so that your clients don't have a controller or CFO internally. You guys are just handling the whole thing. Usually, you know, we can plug and play. So if they have a controller, we can do all their transactional work and give them good, clean financials or vice versa. Sometimes they'll have a bookkeeper and they need us to review or to help them to close in accordance with GAP or give presentations to the board. So it's nice and flexible with what we do. Okay. So you've had your business for 10 years. What do you enjoy about it the most? I would say watching the people that are in my company that we bring on, I enjoy watching them grow and become stronger and more skilled and have more confidence over the years. What have been some of the challenges? In 10 um, years, I've been there some. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there have. I would say probably the same thing is people sometimes because I try to have the staff accountants and controllers have the relationship with the clients. I have it too. I'm the first person that they talk to because I'm responsible for sales and marketing. But when someone leaves, that's always challenging. It's challenging for the team internally here at LKA, but it's also, you know, the client gets attached to people. So the way we solve that is we do have teams. So if there's usually about four people assigned to a client. So if you lose one, the other three are still there and I'm still there. So we'll replace and hire. But, you know, and we're a very close knit company and it's definitely a, we have our culture established and we like to make sure that when we hire someone, it is a good culture fit. So it's challenging when we bring someone on and they find that it isn't a good fit and we have to let them go or that they leave. That's always challenging. Okay. Hey, I'm curious, given that you've got so many clients that 
you know, contract with the government, they're government contractors, and you're doing their back office accounting and reporting. Have you noticed any skill sets that you guys need that are a little different than what, you know, a typical accounting firm employee would need? Or I guess, are there any differences in the processes? Yeah. The number one skill that's important is cost accounting. So it's the one area I used to cry in class. I hated cost accounting so much. And then here I am doing it all the time. It just, you know, it has to click and make sense. And it's pooling. And it's, you know, you've got, you pay somebody a salary, and then, but what does it really cost? You need to add on fringe benefits. You add on overhead. You know, understanding what the real cost is. And the reason why that's important in government contracting is because the government doesn't want to overpay for services or items. And I'm sure you've heard of in the news, you know, the $1,200 hammer. Sure. Right. So that's the key for what we do in supporting our government contracting clients. Okay. Yeah, I, I could see that there'd be, I don't know, when I think of government, I, this is sad, I guess, but just think of things taking longer. <laughs> you know? So I that's was curious, <laughs> curious about how that affected your business. And it sounds like the level of detail that you have to get into on those cost reports is a lot higher than you would expect out in the commercial world. It is. And going back to your comment about things taking longer, it definitely takes a long time to bid on and win a contract in general. But a lot of our clients come from the government or they come from a large government contractor. So they already have the relationships with the people that sign you know, the contracts at the government. So what we find is that we have to develop our system to allow for those businesses to double and triple and quadruple in five fast. So we have to build our onboarding for HR, you know, whether it's you know putting 50 people on the payroll system or it's now billing for those 50 new people. So what we find is the actually the opposite, where there'll be 10 people on the payroll and they bid on this job and then they win it and then they want somebody there on Monday and they want 20 new people there on Monday. So it's, we've built our systems and our processes to be able to scale to accommodate that growth. Okay. So you spend a whole lot of time waiting and preparing, and then all of a sudden you have to spin up services real fast. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So what's the future look like for Libby King and Associates? What's your big vision, your large vision for the business? Well, of course, growth, because if you don't grow, you die. (laughs) And we are expanding into San Antonio in terms of a physical footprint. So we've been there this year. We have a virtual office there, in addition to our virtual office in the Washington, D.C. area. So geographical growth, adding people, and we are looking towards new service offerings, always partnerships with other CPA firms because we do not do audit or tax. So it's great to have those relationships where we can refer out those clients and, you know, those CPA firms make us look good. So, you know, we want to have a good partnership network software. We're always looking at the latest cutting edge software for timekeeping, expense reporting, billing, processing of any kinds of documents. So really just, I'd say, continued growth. Yeah, out of curiosity for our listeners who are very early in their career, or maybe even still in school, what are some of the more common software systems that you guys use outside of Excel, of course, but, you know, in servicing your clientele? We use QuickBooks on the desktop still, and we host that in a remote environment. So I know QuickBooks Online is out there. We do have some clients on that, but it's still not geared towards an accountant. 
but we also have a couple of systems that we work with that are specialized for the government contracting industry. Uninet is one of them, and CostPoint is another. Those are very well known in the D.C. area. And Bill.com is another one that we love, B-I-L-L.com. They've spent a lot of time with processing papers and has a great audit trail for not only regular financial audits, but when companies want to be acquired, it's nice to be able to get your hands on documents. We use expense reporting systems, timekeeping systems, all kinds of communication systems. We use Asana for project management. I could go on and on, but things are changing and growing. So when we onboard someone, we literally have a flow chart of all the different systems that are internal at LKA. And then we also have that same flow chart with the different systems for each one of the clients to help people navigate and really get a picture of you know, what's going on in the cloud as we service our clients. Okay, perfect. I always like to provide some of that real practical information on, on the mm-hmm. podcast. So thank you. That's very beneficial. Well, this has been a good story. Like I mentioned, we've had you know governmental employees on the podcast before, which has been wonderful, and obviously a lot of CPAs with traditional practices, you know, tax or audit. But this is a new niche, you know, for us to cover. So this has been very good. Before we get to the final three questions, there's one question I always try to include if we have time and if we can. You know, given what you know now. If you could go back in time and give your younger self just one piece of really critical advice, what do you think that might be? Don't hire my friend. There's a story behind that. (laughs) Yeah. Just keep it professional. (laughs) Okay. As a business owner, I I can relate to that. (laughs) I'm sure many can. Yeah, I know lots of businesses do that. And, you know, you're in scavenger mode, you do what you do, but I would, that's what I would tell myself. Okay. I'm curious. I wanted to ask this as well. Since you started at the GAO and then you transitioned to you know some smaller companies, now you own your own thing. Could you see yourself having went the other route and being a career government employee? Do you think that potentially could have worked for you as well? No way. <laughs> I wanted to get out and not be labeled because what I noticed as I was sitting in these offices of these career you know, SES level, high level executive people, they still only cared about their retirement. So I would be working with a 35-year-old executive person and they're talking about what they're going to do when they retire. And I didn't want to be that person. I want to enjoy my career. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it from that standpoint. Hmm. Okay. Well, I just had to ask. Well, the final three questions I like to include on every podcast obviously come at the end, and we probably should get down to those because I want to be respectful of your time. First one's usually the easiest. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? Hands down, passing the CPA exam. Hmm. At what point in your career did you do that? I did that while I was still at GAO, so they gave me some time to stress out about that Um, pretty early on. Okay. Okay, beautiful. We've done a few episodes on that. It's uh, that's a great moment <laughs> to pick. Definitely. Yeah, it's been it's been 26 years since I've been licensed, so I'm pretty proud of that. Hmm. Well, second question: Tell us about a mistake you made and what you learned from it, of course, because that's where the value is. But frankly, the bigger the better. We like the big <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot. And first off. Being a CPA and being licensed by the state 
you tend to not make big risks or take big risks because you don't want to lose your license. And you, you know, that's your livelihood. And you don't even want a bad mark on your license, you know. So I still go back to, you know, it, it ties in with my advice from my younger self. And that was hiring a friend. As my business had, I was a couple of years into my business and struggled and really started to get some traction and formulating the structure of the business. And you know how, you know, marketing and advertising, it feeds on itself and brought in a friend who did great work and, you know, the client liked her, et cetera. But because we were friends, there's that baggage of a little bit of entitlement, a little bit of jealousy from the, all the other employees. And so, you know, things kind of went south with that. And so, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to get too much into it, but I lost a lot of revenue for several months after that person left. And, you know, but on the bright side, was able to come up with that policy and also, you know, always get better as a result of that mistake. There you go. Well, that's the important part. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I found being in business that, particularly in the early days, it's very easy to be concerned about the budget. And sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and spend what you're going to have to spend so you can you know, move forward and mm-hmm. not, not have to learn those lessons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Done the same thing myself. Well, final question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? The best advice that I still use today is do things God's way. So do things the right way, do things with wisdom. And if you can keep yourself on that track, then you don't have to worry about repercussions, you know, all the risks that come with walking the gray line or saying something that you regret. So that's the best advice I've ever received. Wonderful. Actually, thank you. That's that's very appropriate advice to end this on, definitely. Well, for our audience, this has been Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. If you haven't yet visited that website, please do so. We're going to have the show notes for this episode, show notes for every other episode, of course, as well. And we've made some changes to the website here recently. We've got links to books. We have a written blog that's being launched and just several resources for accounting professionals. Once again, that is whereaccountantsgo.com. On that note, Libby, do you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom you'd like to leave the audience with? Absolutely. Get your CPA. You will never regret it. (laughs) Perfect. Well said. Definitely. Well, thank you again to our audience for joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.